0: Cinephile Cinephile. Nicholas Cage Very sincere group of film enthusiasts who are proudly cinephiles
1: Cinephiles. Oh my goodness, Warren Beatty apparently read the wrong name This is incredible, Moonlight One Best Picture
0: Cinephile Ethan Hawke It's kind of like I'm a professional actor and I direct for love There's so much in this world that's dividing us And music is one of those great tools that brings us together All right.
2: There's baseball and World
1: War II, it's kind of (laughs) a dream Cinephile the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast. All right, yes! Why wasn't I still recording? That would have been gold! Could have run that as the open. <laughs> Cooper's talent for writing and directing has been hiding in plain sight. After this five-star treat of a picture, consider the secret out. That's from Alison Rowan of the Herald. The Star is Born is one of the films we'll be reviewing, this time on Cinephile. As always, thanks so much for checking us out. Please do give us some love on iTunes. I rank my movies at a 4 minute beliefs Please rank them at a five stars. Let us know what you like. Let us know what you don't like. And thank you to the one guy who said, you know what? I've listened to a handful, and I'm out because he was so upset with me because uh i left during hereditary went to go get chicken fingers because if you're that porous a film critic that you had to leave to go get food i'm not listening to your podcast anymore thank you for the honesty appreciate the feedback i will never do so again big news coming on our man ben lines and check out his podcast lines did i just listen i know ricky passmore retweeted it check out cinephile espn of course for all the latest from our pod and we also give love to other pods Ricky had Tommy Wiseau on and Greg Sestero. They've got a new movie out. Of course, he is the guy who did the, the the guys, rather, who did The Disaster Artist. Very odd and off the cuff and strange as you'd expect. So congrats to Ben. Check that out. Lion's Den Podcast One. Here's the major news. This summer, I had said to Ben, listen, uh, cinephile is in peril. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, I, I can't keep up this this breakneck pace of seeing these movies. A growing family job responsibilities it may just be an interview-based podcast and that's what we'll do he said well, what can you help i said well, i can't be driving to go see senate silence on christmas day i can't be going to see phantom thread spending five hours in a car because he here's what i'm going to do i'm going to get you in the broadcast film critics association i said how are you going to do this goes, don't worry about it we'll get you in there then you're going to get screeners it's really for those who are curious, I get some screeners. For example, if Willem Defoe is on the podcast, then the studio ends up sending me something via email, a watch film, et cetera. Shape of Water, we had Richard Jenkins. I got the screener. But normally, I'm just going to the movies, as I did with The Star is Born. So I said to Ben, what can you do? So this is how good Ben is. Tuesday, I reminded him. I said, listen, now it's Oscar season. There's no chance I'm going to watch these movies. Like, Stan's going to need an immediate review of the frontrunner. It's going to be tough for me to see. He goes, I'll take care of it. Boom. Sarah Voorhees hooks me up. We need some information, your bio, your picture, et cetera, what you've done. Send back a comprehensive list. Approved. Broadcast Film Critics Association. So, you know the Critics Film Awards, which take place, the Critics' Choice, those take place on January 11th. I can't wait to go to there, have some cocktail shrimp. And I had to sign the form, pay $100. I pay my union dues. Unlimited screeners. This is absolutely incredible news. I asked Ben. I go, how many screeners am I? Like, am I getting everything? He goes, dude... Starting now until January, expect to get 500 to 750 pieces of mail, and it's not just going to be screeners to movies. Which I, I guess you're supposed to keep it yourself, but I'm including cinephile teams. I think Ricky and Dan. It's okay if they're involved without without upsetting anybody. And don't
2: admit it publicly. You can just like give yeah. them to us. It's right. fine.
1: But I took it very seriously. I just signed a confidentiality agreement. Ben said they will be getting letters, gifts, food, screeners, CDs, and stuffed animals. Wait, stuffed animals aren't part of the gifts? <laughs> I don't know exactly how it works. A separate category, but it's going to be awesome. So if you want to get locked into Oscar season, trust me. I will have you covered between the brain trust of me, Dan, and Rick. A Star is Born comes roaring into theaters. It is the trailer of the year, so could not wait to see the film. And here's the good news. Bradley Cooper, in many ways, knocks it out of the park. As a director, I think he does a solid job, and he gives the actor Bradley Cooper the role of a lifetime. And there's a reason why actors love playing these roles because it allows them to get down and dirty. I spoke previously about how he trained with a voice coach. And that's one of the most effective parts of the film. Not only his singing, which is excellent, but just his actual speaking voice. He speaks with this deep Southern growl. He sounds like Sam Elliott, who plays his older brother in the movie. And I thought that lent a lot of authenticity to the role. He's grimy, he's dirty, he's got the great hair, he's got the scruffy beard, and he certainly seems committed as this talented singer who's also an alcoholic and battling substance abuse issues. The question now becomes, how is Lady Gaga going to do? Does she knock it out of the park? Yes, she does. She acquits herself very nicely, obviously does really good in the, the musical sequences, as you'd expect, but you have to play somebody who's actually a global superstar, and she's playing this ingenue who is completely opposite of that, and that I think it's harder to think of when you realize that. You have to play down, you're playing... Um, you know, not this glamorous archetype that she is, but she's playing this wannabe singer who's desperate for a chance. So I think it's actually harder to think about than people realize. And as I said, the singing and dancing is great, but just the little moments and her chemistry of Cooper really is the heart of the movie. Having said that, it is meandering at times and I'd like to better when it was called Walk the Line or Crazy Heart or Tender Mercies. Any of those other movies, I'm going to go ahead and watch those. People who are saying it's the best movie they've seen in years, I'm astonished by it. Probably they don't get to the theater very much. And to further the point, the people have told me that it's the best movie they've seen in years. Christine Gullick, shout out to Mike's wife. Weimer, who's a producer here. Claire Atkins. So I already see a theme here. A lot of white women in their 30s, 40s, and 50s all saying this is the best movie they've ever seen. So I'm clearly not that. It's not the best movie I've ever seen. I'm giving it three Maple Leafs because I like the chemistry and the performances. And as I tweeted, it's undeniably from Cooper's soul. He really took a lot of care in this film, Production design, costume, the music is fabulous. And here's my other hot take. Shallow, which is number one right now on iTunes, which everybody's downloading, which is a good song. I prefer Baby It's Time, which is the low-key, melodic song that Bradley Cooper sings to the drag queens in the opening series to sing. So Baby It's Time is actually the song I liked more. Stanzic already looks quizzical.
2: No, I'm, I'm just double-checking. Shallow is tremendous. Yeah. Maybe It's Time. Maybe it's time. You apologize. confuse me. That song is a banger. That's Bradley Cooper. Did his own singing. Lady Gaga talked him into it. Shouts yeah. out to her. That. Also, I'll Always Remember Us This Way by Gaga. Yes. yes.
1: Woo! Immediately after my well, wife downloaded those th- or bought them on iTunes for $1.29. Those Spotify, three songs. whatever. I got them yeah. all. Yeah, those yeah, three. Yeah, exactly. Those three immediately. And I was surprised. I go, which, which is the Gaga one? And then we played it a few times again. That is actually a great song. So um it's going to get a ton of nominations. That's not surprising. At last check on Gold Derby, picture, director, actor, actress- supporting actor shout out to sam elliott terrific as the brother andrew dice clay who's a liar who says he beat out robert de niro for the role there's no chance that happened i'm sure bob just passed in the role he's tight with bradley cooper i'm sure bradley cooper asked bob he's like, actually i can't do it dice is like i'll take it I'm like great you're, you're excellent movie we know you're a dramatic actor you're wonderful in blue jasmine i'll give you that you did not beat out de niro for the role i do not buy that um but yeah the good news is dan Stanzik has seen this movie so i can now hand the baton to him
2: yeah but i'm gonna ask you a question man send the baton right back okay. who in your opinion won the movie I think Bradley Cooper. As an actor or as a director? As an actor. Okay. I think of all the Oscar chances that he's the most likely to win Best
1: As an actor. actor. Correct. As an actor. As a director did a solid job. But I think, you know, so if you had to name your biggest flaws of the movie, what would they be? I just think it's glaring lack of originality. And it was Well, utterly,
2: I mean, it's the third remake. Of course it's a third remake. It's not really predictable original. though. You can take some chances and
1: zig and zag. And I would say like, the, I thought
2: the emotional scenes felt rushed. I would say that there was two goodwill hunting moments <laughs> where someone is literally saying to Bradley Cooper, it's not your fault. Now yeah. like, we are trying way too hard here. Yeah. Um, but I thought Gaga was excellent. The music's yes. excellent. Something just seemed a little off. I think the the biggest problem for this film is the hype was too much and yeah. didn't live up to it. The hype is a part of your movie-going experience, yeah. and I would say they're too strong, but my words are disappointing and underwhelming.
0: Yeah, dance, cool. I said
2: after the film, saw with the girlfriend on Friday. She went again Monday She's to gonna, see it with her girlfriend. She's all you get, in. Once again, a white woman. Yeah, white her, woman in her 30s. Yeah, <laughs> shocker. do make that clear. Um, but I said, out of four maple leaves, I don't do maple leaves. Happy Canadian Thanksgiving, by the way. Thank you,
1: buddy. I had a turkey um, sandwich.
2: Very nice. I said I would give it three stars. Someone could talk me into three and a half, but I'm not going anywhere past that. So I said three. I'm happy to hear that you also said three. Yeah, my,
1: yeah, my wife because if you give this three and a half, that's appalling. She 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 also said the trailer is better than the movie, and considering the hype machine, did not live up to the hype. Rick Pass, we're going to say passed on seeing a star is born this opening weekend. Opening weekend, because I was in northern Vermont for a wedding, so... I will eventually get around to seeing it. Look what I got for you. Cover of Entertainment Weekly, Jamie Lee Curtis, yes. Halloween, coming soon. This will be Passmore leading off with that one.
2: Before we move on, we do have to say one more thing about the film. Sure. Bradley Cooper's actual real-life dog is his dog in the movie. <laughs> and according to Mike Gold, Jr., who still will eventually make his cinephile debut soon, I yes. hope. Has he seen Manny We keep maybe talking about him. Yeah, yeah. I think he has, okay, yes. Good. But he said that the dog won the movie. Are you with me that Cooper, the actor, won the movie, or are you going to go Gaga? I think I'd go Gaga because I'm not surprised. Like uh, Cooper, I know, is a great actor. Right. I I still contend that he's not actually good looking. His fame just makes him even more good looking. I think I was more impressed with Gaga, but Cooper's going to do better in the award circuit back to his looks i agree he's much better looking in the movie when i saw him like i'm found that i'm like he's a guy with a big
1: nose kind of goofy looking like there's really nothing special about him. in the movie he looks hot he's got the greasy hair he's an alcoholic he's beaten up he's got a great voice like, yeah, but, that, but there yeah there i get it yeah. the
2: fact that he lowered as you've mentioned before on the podcast that he lowered his voice a full octave for the role like, yes. he's probably winning best actor right right
1: now he is the favorite to win although- or
2: whoever in bohemian rhapsody Robbie
1: Mollick has a chance, but I think our boy Gosling has a really good chance. First man. Which I can't wait. Opening this weekend. So I'm hoping the Canadian comes through, but I haven't even seen a star. I haven't even seen first man yet, but I'm hoping for Ryan. But yes, Cooper right now, the favorite. Lady Gaga neck and neck with Glenn Close for the wife, which looks fabulous. Let's fire through some more here. Small foot, two and a half Maple Leafs, amiable, decent movie, a twist in the whole idea of Bigfoot, because this is about a bunch of Yetis who see a small foot played by James Corden, uh, the British talk show host. Uh, it's sweet and decent and surprisingly an anime movie that's not from Pixar star, and it's actually well done. So I'll give it two and a half Maple Leafs. Common is the best uh, I think, performance of them all, although LeBron James is also in the movie and uh, does a decent job as well. So two and a half there for Smallfoot. Also, Private Life is the one I want to talk about. Paul Giamatti, Catherine Hahn play a couple struggling with infertility. Of all the movies that open this weekend, notably Venom and A Star Is Born, the best one is Private Life. I'm giving it three and a half Maple Leafs. It's available on Netflix, which I saw immediately Friday morning. Tamara Jenkins is the writer and director. She did a great film called The Savages with Philip Seymour Hoffman and Laura Linney, that movie came out in 2007. It has that same great mix of comedy and drama. Pitch perfect writing from Jenkins. I hope she gets nominated for an Academy Award. Um, G. Motti, as everybody knows, who listens to the podcast, I'm a huge fan of, and he's very solid in the movie. But Catherine Hahn is fantastic. She's really the one that I think steals the film as this mother who, or wannabe mother who's so desperate to have a child. And anybody who's ever been through this type of process can appreciate just how hard it is when you can't have a child, how difficult it is to conceive, the medical procedures, IBF, just how expensive it is, and then looking for a surrogate, trying to go through adoption clinics. I mean, she's a 45-year-old woman who's known for some great comedies. To see Catherine Hahn nail this role, and as I said, the nuance of it, that really was a surprise to me. So make sure you check out Private Life. It's available on Netflix, Paul Giamatti, Catherine Hahn. A terrific cast, and it's available on Netflix. As I said, I saw it. We Originally, was at Sundance. Me and Ben lines were there. Didn't get a chance to see it, but now it's available in a wide audience. And Christy Lemire, friend of Cinephile, actually messaged me on my Instagram and said she saw it too and also loved it. So I think the critics will give it a boost. I hope it finds an audience on Netflix. And one more for you. It's called Being Montgomery Montgomery Clift. Uh, for those who love old Hollywood, as I do, check out this documentary. It's made by Montgomery Clift's nephew. For those who don't know who Montgomery Clift is, uh, he's a very handsome actor back in the 50s he's often lumped with brando and james dean uh his best movie is called a place in the sun george stevens directed it with liz taylor he's unbelievable in it and what the documentary is really interesting about is i kept thinking of that expression that if the facts don't compete with the legend print the legend the 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 story on montgomery clipped anybody ever asked you about and they'd say well yeah really handsome guy good actor but completely tortured because he was gay ended up dying at a young age 45 that's it and what his nephew did is he goes i'm going to." overcome the fact that that's been history that's what people have always said and in fact he was a lot more lighthearted than people realize he actually had a great sense of humor he was a lot happier than people realize and yes he was bisexual but this wasn't something he was tormented by at the time he had to keep it a secret but you know he shows through different videos and press clippings that sometimes people just love a narrative and once the narrative becomes hey tortured actor i mean the new york times obituary noted his portrayal of moody sensitive young men So all of a sudden it becomes, hey, this guy's a moody, sensitive person. That's who he actually is. No, no, it's called acting. And I think it's really a testament to what his nephew felt about him and what – you know, I think his family felt about him that this isn't fair, the way he was portrayed in Hollywood all this time. That, in fact, he was a happy person. He was a very loving person. And beyond the fact that he is a real symbol uh, for gay audiences, making Montgomery Clift, I think, does an excellent job of showing what the real person was like. So make sure you check it out. And like I said, if you love movies like A Place in the Sun, From Here to Attorneys, are classic. Montgomery Clift's a great actor and a great person, as this documentary makes clear. Now it's time for our special guest. His new movie is called The Oath. Behold, Ike Barinholtz. The star of the new film, The Oath, make sure you check it out. Very funny, written, directed, and starring Ike Barinholtz. Ike, thanks so much for your time today on Cinephile.
0: Uh, no, thanks for having me, brother.
1: Uh The movie was very entertaining and very funny, and the, the what I loved about it is it's very much a movie of its times. I mean, this is a character who is furious at what's happening in the Oval Office. It's very politically charged. How much of this was inspired by what's going on right now in the White House?
0: Um, you know, I think it, it it's not just the White House. It's really kind of what's going on in the country right now. And it was really after Thanksgiving a couple of years ago, after dinner, I got in this big fight with my family about politics. And I just knew that the, 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 you know, the holiday table in this country was kind of changed forever. And I wanted to kind of tell a story about that and blow it up a little bit.
1: You generally do blow it up because the first half of it, yeah. I'm enjoying it. It's funny. And then I said, wow, okay, Ike's going to take some chances here, not only as actor, but as writer director. And this is going to get really wild. Was there any part of you that said, maybe I shouldn't push it to this type of limit, uh, this type of polemic, or just say, what the hell, balls to wall, let's do this.
0: I think I think uh, in this day and age, uh, if you're telling stories, that are kind of reflective of, of what's happening. It kind of has to be all the way, you know what I mean? Just because we live in such extreme times. So so, you know, there was, you know, slight discussions here and there, but we really decided just to kind of throw all the spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. In
1: many ways, it felt like a one act play because so much of it takes place in the house. Just I'm curious from a yeah. cinematic perspective, how challenging was that in terms of budgets, getting these actors did it feel like repertory theater? Here we go, guys. Let's just uh, do some guerrilla filmmaking here.
0: There was a little bit of that. I mean, the challenge was, you know, it's easy to write a movie that takes place in one location, but the challenge is to uh, shoot it and present it in a way where the audience doesn't get, you know, visually bored. So, so you know, you notice kind of the first half of the movie or so, the frames are nice and wide and the colors are kind of vibrant and there's a lot of, you know, natural light in there. And then by the end, the frames are super close and tight and the kind of the film kind of takes this... this uh you know, dark, yellowy, orange uh, uh, feel to it. So it was important for us to have the physical look of the film uh, evolve as this, or devolve, I guess, as the story does.
1: We're talking with Ike Barinholtz right now. Check out his new movie called The Oath. Tiffany Haddish is everywhere now, Ike, for good reason. She's so funny. She's so talented. And I love the fact you guys are in this interracial marriage. That there's nothing unusual about that. You don't have to call attention to it. It's just she's your wife. She's very loving and caring. You guys are caught up in this crazy situation. Tell me about Tiffany and working with her.
0: Oh, my God, man. She's a national treasure. I'm starting a movement to put her on the five dollar bill. And I know a lot of people love Abe Lincoln, but I think it's time for a change. And Tiffany's the perfect person. But I mean, she is just, uh, you know, when you talk to her and you hear her story and and see, like, you know, how hard she's worked and how funny she is. She's just she's infectious. And she was everyone's favorite person. And I just can't wait to see, you know, her make uh, 100 more movies.
1: She's talented. The whole cast is talented. How much did you allow for ad-libbing? You as the writer and the director and the star. How much did you say, you know, guys, I really worked on the script hard. Can we stick to it as much as possible? Or did you allow them to move a little bit?
0: Uh, I love it. You know, it, because the movie does have a specific tone, it was important that we made sure we shot the script. But because I hired all these great kind of comedic actors that have these improv chops, it would be a waste to not use them. So there's quite a bit of improv, especially kind of during the chaos of not just the family fights, but also the actual physical kind of violence. It was important that I, you know, allow the actors to kind of give those real natural reactions. And and when I was in editing, kind of going through everything, it, it, that's where it really paid off dividends because you need, you know, you need something, something's not feeling right here. And then you just go through the dailies and you're like, oh my God, look what Meredith Hagner in the corner was doing over there. Let's cut to that. So they, the, their improv really helped me out a lot in, in, in post.
1: I think it's a movie that will appeal to both liberals and conservatives because if you're a conservative, you don't like your character because he's maybe just so deranged and so hell-bent. And for liberals, they'll say, well, yeah, this is the craziness going on. We do need to be uh, acting with this type of vigor right now. Was there anybody you base these characters on? I I mean, I think about Hollywood. Obviously, there must be so many types like this. Is there somebody you know or an actor or a friend that you said, you know what, I'm going to do it with this type of sensibility?
0: You know, I think it was important for us to make sure we are balancing it because the movie does kind of take a stand. But, uh, you know, if you're going to do good satire, you have to kind of shine the light on the absurdity of everyone's behavior. So, you know, for the most part, all these characters are just amalgams of, you know, my friends on the left, including myself sometimes who are obsessed by the 24-hour news cycle and, and they can't, you know, they're letting everything else that they love kind of fall by the wayside. And then I have, you know, friends and family who are on the right who sometimes... We, I vehemently disagree with their positions, um, uh, but they're just trying to, you know, they're just, they don't want to fight. And I pull the fight out of them. So we really wanted to kind of shine a light on how everyone's brains are uh, kind of breaking in these, you know, uh, insane, heightened times.
1: The Oath is a film from Ike Bernholtz, Blockers is also a really funny movie that you were a co-star with this year. Give me the craziest story. I mean, there's obviously so many moments that are uh, inspired and surreal in that movie. But give me the funniest story that happened with you, John Cena and company.
0: Uh, we were shooting a scene where we um, walk in on Gary Cole and Gina Gershon playing I guess sex games <laughs> and that was a that was like a 17 or 18 hour shoot and you just you have Gary Cole who's one of my favorite actors just walking around completely nude in the uh, room with the other men so it was definitely the longest I had been in a room with the nude man um, and and after a while it was just kind of second nature I was like oh yeah it's Gary's butt it's it's totally normal.
1: <laughs> Gary Cole, very funny actor. One more for you. I know you got a role, but tell me about Mad TV. Uh, my buddy Rick Passport's a huge fan of you, and on that show, and nice. just how did it inspire you? And maybe a favorite skit, whatever you like.
0: Ah, uh, gosh. I mean, my favorite sketch. There was one I did with the great Jordan Teal called Killbrain and Astro Man," where it was basically like Superman and Lex Luthor, but we would always run into each other at like mundane places, like supermarkets and stuff, and. That's the one that I always uh, go back to the most, uh, just because it was with Jordan, and they were just such dumb one-off sketches, uh, but they're easily my favorite, and I don't know what Jordan's been up to, and he just kind of (laughs) disappeared off the
3: map, but I wish him luck.
1: Yeah, hopefully this filmmaking career. I don't know if you, maybe you haven't seen Get Out yet, but maybe we'll, we'll get a screen no, to see it. I, no.
0: I, I missed that one. I missed that one, but I wish him nothing but the best of luck.
1: <laughs> You've been locked into cable news for the last 24 hours and seven days a week, so <laughs> totally get it. Ike Barinholtz's <laughs> film is called The Oath. Make sure you check it out. Ike, where is it available for people? I know in theaters, but where is it? Uh, Amazon Hulu, give them all the uh, spiel there.
0: Uh, this, this Friday, it's going to be in New York, L.A., and D.C., and then uh, next Friday, it's in theaters everywhere. And I know it's a lot to ask people to go to a movie theater. I promise this is the kind of movie you want to see in the theater because you'll laugh and you'll be scared and you'll want to talk about it afterwards.
1: You take a lot of chances, and I think you're rewarded for it with the hilarity that audiences will enjoy. Thanks so much for the time, man.
0: Thanks for having
4: me. And now,
2: a thought from Geico Motorcycle.
4: It took 15 minutes to click on the banner ad entitled, You Won't Believe What These Child Stars Look Like Now. Be dissatisfied, and kind of sad, about how the child stars look. And now your computer is plagued by incessant pop-up ads. Oh, this can't be good. To add insult to injury, you could have used those 15 clickbait minutes to switch your motorcycle insurance to GEICO.
2: GEICO. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on motorcycle insurance.
1: Well, it's a real pleasure here on Cinephile to talk to people that I admire. One of them is Ty Burr. I grew up reading his reviews in Entertainment Weekly, always dissected all of his analysis, and now he's a wonderful film critic, one of the best in the country. He writes for the Boston Globe, and he is a guy who I've always wanted to talk to. Ty, thanks so much for the time today. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate the kind words. So I went back and watched Vertigo again, just because why not? It's one of the great movies of all time. And I remembered your review of it. It's in the Entertainment Weekly compendium of the greatest films of all time. And I'll never forget that. This might be the all-time best blurb in terms of being succinct and talking about a great movie. I don't know if you remember it, but you wrote, if there's ever been a better movie about a man in love, I've never seen it. I
0: (laughs) I
3: might rewrite that now. (laughs) that makes it sound like if there's ever been a more twisted but possibly truthful portrait of a man um obsessing over love that's probably (laughs) closer to the mark Uh, man i wrote that must have wrote that 20 years ago um it's i mean it's a fantastic movie and probably the one that's closest to hitchcock's heart if not his you know, inner demons, um, but it is, it's actually a movie I think that is more and more relevant to some of the conversations we're having today um, about the way men can try and mold women into the people they think they want them to be, which is what the entire second half of that movie is about. And the fact that you have Jimmy Stewart, one of the most trusted men in, in classic movies doing that obsessive molding, is even weirder.
1: And I think that's part of the, the the beauty of the film, Ty. When I watched it again, I remember when I watched it in my 20s, I didn't understand that whole drawn-out sequence where he's following her. I just thought, okay, why, why? it's a little pedantic. Why isn't he speeding this up? When I watched it now, I said, no, that's brilliant. Look at how he's just slowly conveying this man falling in love with her at a distance. And you mentioned, right. I mean, that second half is where I really think the movie's incredible. I mean, the scene where she comes out after he's completely made her over into what this image of this woman that he's lost. I mean, that's his, as you said, it, it's heartbreaking and harrowing and also just demented.
3: Right. All all of the above. Um, And I think that's all intended. When you look at the structure of the movie, the fact that Hitchcock basically gives away the mystery at the midpoint, he basically says, here's what's going on. Um, I've solved the mystery for you. Okay, now what are we supposed to be paying attention to? We're supposed to be paying attention to Scotty's obsession and what it's doing to him and what it's doing to her. My brother who doesn't
1: share my cinematic tastes, I'm so proud of him, though. He watched Vertigo for me because he heard me talking about it on this podcast. He said the only his primary quibble is this. I said I'm sure you hated it because I didn't hate it, but I don't believe that Scotty would fall in love with her from a distance. Do you have an answer to that uh, comment?
3: Oh, no. You either buy in or you don't. I mean, I think if they made this movie today, which I hope they never do, um, that they would probably sketch in some more of a psychological backstory to, uh, you know, to explain why he would fall for, you know, somebody at that distance of that type. The only psychological backstory you get is that he's afraid of heights, um, and that's the you know the setup. That's the very first scene, that very very first image. Um, but I think if you come to it with a modern sensibility, yeah, you're gonna you're you're, you're going to be dissatisfied with certain things. I remember when this movie came. Out. This movie was unable to be seen for a number of years. I forget how many years, but it was a, a rights rights issues held up. Um, four Hitchcock movies from being seen for a number of decades. And then the rights issues were cleared up and the films were re-released to theaters in the eighties. So it was a, kind of a big deal. It's the first time people had a chance to see rope, the trouble with Harry vertigo. And I can't remember the fourth one off the top of my head. Oh, but the rear window.
1: Yeah, I think it was rear window. It might've been.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it was a big deal, especially with rear window and vertigo, which are probably the two best known. Um, and I remember everybody started rushing out to see vertigo in theaters are all the, film people I knew. And there was a certain amount of disappointment um, or rather a coming to terms with, with the weird way that film is structured. And yes, that long um, tailing scene where he followed us around San Francisco, it's, it's, if you don't know what's going on, um, it makes more psychological sense than movie narrative sense. Uh, so it, it, it kind of took people... It's a movie that you need to see uh, more than once, I think, to really have its, uh, you know, claws sink into you. But it, to me, it's one of the most effective psychological por- uh, portraits of a man in obsessive love. Not just a man in love, but a man in obsessive love. Um, or a person in obsessive love and what it does to them and to the people around them.
1: 1,000%. Ty Burr is our guest right now in Cinephile. He is the terrific film critic for the Boston Globe. He's also a prolific author. Gods Like Us on movie stardom and modern fame. So I read this book and it's here's what I, I need to know about you, Ty, because how can you be in this society right now? 2018, I'm sure you have family, you have iPhones, you have commitments all the time, and yet nobody knows more about silent films and movies of a 100 years ago than you. For, for To give this perspective, if somebody asked me a silent film that I love, I'd tell them I love Sunrise, Murnau's film. That that's like asking somebody who likes romantic films, what's your favorite one? Titanic. Like, that's a very obvious big one in that silent film world that I love, Sunrise. How in the world did you become an expert on these movies made from decades and decades and decades ago?
3: Well, first of all, I'm hardly the world's uh, foremost expert on silent films. There's so many people who know so much more about that field than I do. And in fact... There is a huge community of people, especially in the digital age, who are discovering these films and restoring them and getting them out there on DVD and other outlets. Um, it's actually uh, the, the restoration movement has really um, taken off in the recent decades, thanks, you know, to high-profile people like Martin Scorsese um, pushing uh, the, the the concept, the conception that we have to hold on to these cultural treasures, and when we find them restore them um, or or they're lost forever. Um, But, you know, to your question, Jesus, you know, I've been a movie geek since I was a teenager. You know, the bug bit me when I was 14 and I've just been watching. I'm 61 now. Somebody asked me, you know, somebody asked um, how many movies I see. I argue that I probably see about a movie a day when you average it all out. But I've been doing that for, you know, 45 years. So I've seen a lot of movies Um, (laughs) and you've seen a lot of movies and, and there are certain rabbit holes you want to go down. You know, when you get into a subject, you follow the threads where they take you. And, yeah, were, especially when I was writing that book, um, which was basically a cultural history of stardom, of modern media fame. And you have to start at the beginning. Well, who's the first movie star? Who's the real first movie star? Well, it happened to be a woman named Florence Lawrence, which was a name I had never heard before. Um, so researching that and going down that rabbit hole was was revelatory and, and lots of fun, too. And that's really what what sparked my deeper interest in silent film beyond, you know, being a film studies major and, and watching a lot of, uh, you know, old Buster Keaton movies. Um, and like I said, I, I found I had company. There's a real strong community of people fascinated by um, silent film. You know, there are film festivals dedicated to it. There are um, DVD labels dedicated to it. it's actually... Um, It's history, but it's captured on media. It's like the first history we have captured on media uh, in a way beyond, beyond literature and beyond print and beyond still photography. So we still have that. We still have films from, you know, 1898, from 1885. Um, That's kind of fascinating. Uh, and, And it's it's. Fun to pay attention to that, and it's fun
1: to dig deeper into that. Yeah, Owen Gladerman, your old colleague at Entertainment Weekly, he wrote in his book Movie Freak that he watched, watches three or four movies a week. And um, what the challenge becomes is that you've got to see these films that are new releases, of course, for your job or your vocation. But then you Correct. mix in mix and movies, as you said, your personal passion for, like you just feel like watching a Marlena Dietrich film. And then there might be a movie that be your child wants to see or your spouse wants to see. And then oh, by the way, everybody's telling us all the time, guys like you and me, oh, it's a Golden Age of Television. You got to watch Bloodline and Stream. you go, no, oh, no, I don't have time. For that, I've got to just focus on movies. That's that's my passion. That's my art. And if I'm going to miss Game of Thrones, well, so be it.
3: Yes, it ends up being a juggling act. Um, and and by the way, I, I do watch Game of Thrones, and nice. I do watch a lot of series, and and I do watch a lot of new releases for my job, and I do watch a lot of older films for I teach as well, and for you know other projects I'm writing, and sometimes I just like to watch something for pleasure, yeah. you know. And I will give a shout out to uh, Films Truck with streaming platform, um, subscription streaming yeah. platform, which has the best of classic films and foreign films. I, I you know, I'm, I'm on that platform, you know, twice a week, at least just for my own pleasure. Um, you know, but the other thing is that I get older. I also value time spent in the real world, um, especially in this particular environment. So balancing that is our challenge. Um, I know what one thing that I'm trying, struggling to do is putting down the, the phone Putting down the you know the this little thing in my hand that I stare at far too much uh, time during the day. I'm trying to you know modify that um, screen time. You know screen time is like a you know, think about think about how many hours of the day we spend in screen time. You know with our head in a screen. Um, so I am trying to manage that, and I think that's actually the challenge of all of us in modern america how do we manage that and still live in the real world and still value the real world which is maybe not something you want to hear from a movie critic but it's the truth
1: <laughs> yeah i just picture you in darkened theaters ignoring all people and being as antisocial as possible
3: that that's no. the life that I, envision. I, I, I walk my dog a lot i'm out on my bicycle a lot i actually try and live in the real world as much as possible
1: <laughs> shout out to filmstruck by the way you're right our buddy uh, ben Manquitz at tcm turned me on to that and it is, uh it's definitely a rabbit hole once you go down there you can't oh even get absolutely out of
3: it. Um, just but, it, 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 but for a beginning, somebody who's just getting into film and classic film, it's a godsend. It is, it's film 101 right there.
1: Yeah, no, there's no question about it. Um, obviously, you're one of the best film critics in the country, as I said. you have down to an art form. I'm sure it's like a, a tennis player at this point. You're just hitting ground strokes left and right. Take me through the process. How long does it take to actually craft the review? You watch A Star is Born. You're at a, a critic screening. How long does it take for you to actually put pen to paper and get the thing done?
3: Well, let me see. So a good example is the, the new movie, The Hate You Give, which I, I was just about to sit down and write before we spoke, and I will start writing after I hang up. Um, I saw that movie last week, uh, I think last Wednesday, at a screening last Thursday um, at a uh, press screening, and I am, I just filled out the content info box, which is, you know, the stars, the running time, the, the screenwriters, so, you know, all the the MPA rating, the theaters it's going to be. Um, and now I'm going to sit down and write the review. And that's probably going to take me about a couple of hours. Um, and I think for me, the, the, not the hardest part, but the most important part initially is, is the hook is the sentence or two that's going to start it and hopefully pull readers in and give them an angle to come at this particular two hour film experience. What am I going to set the table with um how am I going to draw them in am I going to and I haven't figured that out yet um am I going to mention something about the acting something about the theme something about um pose a question I mean there's so many different ways into setting the table for a, a review um and then you start you know talking a little bit about what it's about a little bit about the plot um not too much about the plot um what relevance, in this case, it has to the real world because it's about a police shooting of an African American teenager, um, and the main character's response to that. Uh, what you need to know about the, the star, Amanda Stenberg, the director, George Tillman Jr., um, the even the screenwriter, Audrey Wells, who passed away this uh, this past weekend or, or late last week. Um, you know that actually that's something I probably would mention further down. Uh, it's, it's 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 kind of it's like juggling a chainsaw bowling ball and a cat, you know you got um you've got all these different elements, and they sort of combine differently on the on the page each time um you don't want to give away too much of the plot. you don't want to overwhelm it with subjective opinion it's uh, you know I always think of a review as subjective opinion wrapped in a in objective context um You know, factoids, stuff you really need to know. But, yes, here's my opinion. Here's what I think works. Here's what I think doesn't work. Your mileage may vary, but um, it's that sort of careful essaying of it. Um, And then, you know, uh, you try and end it with something interesting, with a kicker of some sort um, that will kick the reader out to go see the movie or not go see the movie or what have you. So, I've been doing it for so many years now. You don't want it to become rote. You don't want to get in a rut. You do want to, you know, try and keep it changed up. Um, but it takes me a couple of hours. Depending on the film, I'm seeing First Man, the new Damien Chazelle movie, um, about with Ryan Gosling playing Neil Armstrong landing on the moon. Uh, I, I'm seeing that again tonight. I saw it in Toronto last month. Um, and that's going to be, I want to get that one right. So that's probably going to take a little longer to write. Um. I mean, you want to get all of them right but some of them come out easily and some of them take more work uh, I, you never kind of know how that's
1: going to go no, I can appreciate the dedication of the craft it certainly comes out in your work last one for you, we're talking with Ty Burr the film critic of the Boston Globe so I adore Scorsese, you mentioned him earlier just how important he is in, in film preservation and just being an, uh, a master filmmaker I, I have this debate with myself and with people I love and admire so you are now on that list my friend What is Scorsese's top five films? And I'll set this up for you by saying I think – Raging Bull, Taxi Driver, and Goodfellas are indisputable. I would argue Mean Streets, despite the fact my producer Dan Stanzik just watched it for the first time, found it a little underwhelming. I think it's at four, just because it was so influential at the time, and it obviously was the forerunner of so many movies, and so personal and autobiographical to Marty's life and his own career. What is the fifth best film of his career? Because it could be Gangs of New York, although I I believe you called the film... No! No, no, I I think you called it (laughs) Elephantine, I believe, because it does have some issues. But I would argue it's Age of Innocence, which no one mentions it's eight typical in marty's career criterion just released a new edition of it which i just picked up and i think it's criminally underrated but uh, new york new york's a movie i love i know people didn't like it in the time in 77 bad last temptation i know people uh argue for silence maybe the departed which one for you is number five all
3: right so, you know, wait a minute i'm calling up the filmography here. Hold on.
1: because <laughs> you want to get this Good. one right i know it's not going to be Kundun.
3: i do i do okay here we go um first of all i really honestly believe that um um, mean Streets Belongs on that list. I think, yes, it's it's a 50-year-old film, um, and so it is dated in some ways, but I think it is still just... Um, there's so much energy. There's so much energy just bursting to get out, uh, both in the performances, certainly De Niro, but in the filmmaking. Um, I need to go back and see Age of Innocence. It's a movie that people, I, I respect, think really highly of, um, and I remember it did. I, I found it kind of inert when it came out, uh, but, but I haven't seen it since 1993, since it came out. So it's a movie I really need to revisit. What about King um, of Comedy? King of Comedy, I like, I love, you know, I love, but I don't know if I'd put it in the pantheon. All right. Um You said Raging Bull. Um, Raging Good Bull, Taxi River,
1: Goodfellas. Yeah, those are right.
3: Okay, absolutely. Um <laughs> I'm not going to go. The Departed, despite being, despite being from Boston. Yeah, um, you're not going to go. The Color Money. That's a pretty good film. <laughs> um, yeah, Shutter Island. You're mm-hmm. not going to say Cape Fear. You're not saying. You know what? It was, what's one? Uh, maybe a Casino. Wow. Um, which, I, um, maybe um, Alice doesn't live here anymore. Is a pretty darn good movie. Yeah. Uh, nobody sees that. Alan you know what's one of my one of my favorites, and that it's hardly anybody even knows it exists. Is it Life Lessons from New York Stories? No, that's great though. Oh, nice. Um, no, after hours. Oh, yeah, around the same era. Yeah. Um, which is to me it's a better ass comedy than um King of Comedy. Um, but I can I, I love that movie, but I can see people um, you know, resisting if I put on my top 5 of all best <laughs> Scorsese movies. This is going to keep you um, up all night. It is going to keep me up all night. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, okay, okay Hugo. Right. Hugo,
1: you're a film lover. Hugo, it's got
3: to be Hugo. I love that movie. I love that movie. It doesn't feel to me like a... I don't think it's one of Scorsese's best. It's, 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 it's <laughs> Film it, it's, preservation.
2: It's so personal, it. Well, yeah.
3: exactly. It's the preservationist in him yeah. coming out. It's his most true to him as a preservationist, but I feel like there are other movies that are probably more personal in different ways. Um last Plantation of Christ is actually a pretty um intense and good film and i would would argue that this that silence yeah um, is a movie that will be regarded as much more important to the filmography the one that came out two years ago yeah um about the uh, jesuit priests in japan it's a, not an easy watch uh and it sort of goes hand in hand with. Last Temptation and Kundun as part of this sort of religious trilogy. Um, but it's very, very strong. Uh, and I think it may, we may in retrospect look at that as, as a late peak in Scorsese's career.
1: I couldn't agree with you more, Ty. I think when there's a Scorsese 101 course, people are taking NYU, they're going to focus on the ones we talked about. And you're right, after hours maybe a lesser work, but I agree with you. It was important in his career. It won the Palme d'Or and got him back on his feet. after the disappointment. yeah I did. Wow. Wow. But after the disappointment of King Comedy, especially with the box office, but I'm with you. Silence is one of those, and if you know Scorsese's themes, and again, the way he shot it, the, the themes of formalism, mm-hmm. and the fact it wasn't very busy with the camera, uh, very little score, I'm with you. I think silence will be better uh, received over the years. Yeah, so uh,
3: that's got my vote for the fifth.
1: I love it. Ty Burr, He is a wonderful film critic and obviously a wonderful human being. Check out his work in the Boston Globe along with his book, Gods Like Us. If you love silent films in that era as much as I do, you will love it. Ty, this is a real pleasure, man. I really appreciate it.
3: Thank you, Adam. It's been a real pleasure being on. Thanks.
1: All right, thank you so much for listening to Cinephile. God, it was so much fun to geek out with Tiber. I could have done that for hours. Uh, he's a wonderful film critic. Once again, check out his work. And Ike Barinholtz, well, I didn't know his work that well, but I thought he was hilarious in Blockers. His new movie, The Oath, I really think you should check out because, as I said, he takes chances, and it's a wild and frenetic ride. And A Star is Born, let us know what you think. You can tweet us your review at Cinephile ESPN. And once again, please do give us some love on iTunes. Uh, and thanks to my man, Ben Lines, now a member of the BFCA Broadcast Film Critics Association. We're puffing our chests about that. Next time on the pod, I'm telling you right now, Robert Forster, one of the all-timers, 52-year career as a veteran character actor. We talk about his new film called What They Had with Michael Shannon and Hilary Swank. He's also got tremendous stories about working with the legendary director John Huston, Marlon Brando, Elizabeth Taylor. Uh, Naked Guy in a Horse, Tarantino and Jackie Brown. It's unbelievable. I'm telling you right now, Robert Forster coming up. One of the best interviews we've ever done. That'll be on the next Cinephile. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Furk movie podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN
3: app.
4: Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium?